good news from Tibet. Uh, in 2017, there were only seven deaths on Mount Everest. You might say, that's strange, that's good news. Well, that's average. Uh, and the reason we're happy about average, the past few years, the number of deaths uh, of people summiting or attempting to summit Mount Everest had climbed to over 10. And part of that was because there was an increase in avalanches. But there's a whole host of other reasons why people die trying to climb the largest mountain in the world. Uh, the frigid cold, altitude sickness, and then sometimes it's tragic falls. On April 30th of last year, a man considered the greatest climber of his time, Yuli Steck, fell over 3,000 feet to his death. For those of you having a hard time comprehending 3,000 feet, that's two Empire State Buildings. Now, how does he fall? Well, part of the route that he was taking anyway was particularly aggressive, but I did not know that in the case of Mount Everest, summiting Mount Everest, you actually do a lot of it in the dark. That last push, you have to do, yes, um, you... You have to do it in the dark because it takes a good dozen hours to get up and back because you don't go up there and camp. There's not enough oxygen to live up there. Every, t- every minute you spend in the, what they call the death zone can, would, is closing you in on dying. So you get up there, you summit, you take your pictures, you thank the Lord for the journey, and then you get out. Um, and so to get there and get back to base camp, you have to do that in it's an all-day affair that they start before dawn. And, and so you have to have not just uh, light, but for first-time climbers, you, you have to have guidance. I mean, you've got to actually have people know what they're doing. I watched a documentary a while back about some Americans who were going on their first climb. And it was a real eclectic group of people climbing Everest for the first time. And amongst them was this super macho man type who had apparently read a lot of self-help books and, you know, wrote his own scriptures that said, without me, I can do nothing, and, and just really created his own sense of within him things, and he carried himself that way and was a irritation to the others in the group, and sure enough, halfway up, he got altitude sickness, uh, something he couldn't control. And uh, it sidelined him. He barfed and laid there and, like he was going to die um, and didn't get the summit Everest. Was, was humbled by the realities of the mountain. See, humility is absolutely certainty, certainly a requirement. To summit Everest, you need light and guidance, which requires a recognition of danger and of one's inability to do this apart from others' help. Uh, this is the nature of our spiritual lives as well. Uh, we're in our series on the Gospel of John, and after revisiting uh, the texts that I had planned to preach through, um, I have to reschedule because this is now going to be a year-long series. Um, for those of you who are excited about that, congratulations. We'll be studying John all year. Uh, for the rest of you who are hoping for another topical series, we've got Easter and Christmas to look forward to, so you got that. And then 2019, we'll do the Nicene Creed. I'm actually excited about diving deeply 
into what John has to say. His gospel proclaims that Jesus is God with us. These first verses of John refer to Jesus as the Logos, the Word. The Word was God, and according to John 1.1, and for the purposes of review, we've said that the divinity of Christ is one of those things that you can't simply just pluck out of the Jenga tower without seeing the whole of Christian doctrine come tumbling down. If Jesus is just a man, you can take or leave what he has to say. But if Jesus was, in fact, God in the form of a man who preexisted as divine, then he must be listened to and submitted to. He can also then, through his physical life, his incarnation in this world, tangibly show us the attributes of God. This is what we talked about last week. This is how we know God is loving, not just because that's a nifty platitude. How else, how would we know that? We've never seen God. Well, now through Christ, the Lord, we have. We see how he treats the broken. Jesus was also perfectly holy. By being God, you could be that, and hence you could make a complete payment for the sins of all who would ever believe. Your life would have that value. You would be also, by definition, holy if you were God. If you were a man, human being, by nature, you couldn't atone for anyone, even yourself. Here's some other thoughts about the divinity of Christ. If Jesus was divine, then he would have been omniscient, all-knowing. He would have also been omnipresent in his being, but his omniscience means that he wasn't limited by his time in his understanding of science, human nature, or the overall condition of human beings. If he was just a man, then in addition to his death not being sufficient to pay for the sins of the world, Jesus could be charged with not having a very scientific or modern educated view of many things, that modernity, and particularly modern academia, specifically has declared outdated. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. If Jesus was God, and as he did, he chose 12 disciples, and they all happened to be males, you then have to say or ask, was Jesus sexist? Was he interested in maintaining a male patriarchal power structure? Or did he have a divine purpose, albeit mysterious to us, for only choosing men? If he was a man, you might be able to charge him with the former. If he's God from all eternity, he wasn't making a mistake. He wasn't limited in his perspective by his culture. Jesus spoke of the authoritative, holy, inspired Old Testament. Was he ignorant? of modern academic critics citing evidence of the unreliability of Scripture, or did he know something that human beings don't? Jesus spoke of Jonah as a real person who spent three days in the belly of a big fish using Jonah to foreshadow his own resurrection from the dead. Was was Jesus ignorant of the notion that Jonah could have been an allegory or that no one can live for three days in a big fish and then survive? Or does and do miracles happen that supersede our physical laws 
when Jesus is involved. The Gospel of John's major theme is to proclaim who Jesus is. God in the flesh who's come to rescue us. The early part of John's Gospel is called the prologue. It's like an introduction. It's it's given to give us a, a shot of what's coming in the many chapters that follow, a preview, if you will. And in designing this prologue, John is wanting us to see what's coming. He describes Jesus in John 1.14 as the Word became flesh, dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see John saying, not only is Jesus full of grace and truth, but these two things are going to exist in equal measure as we march our way through this gospel. Pictures, images, descriptions, vivid shots of the divinity of, uh, the divinity of Christ and the majesty of God's character, His grace, His mercy, His kindness. But then we're also going to see that our God is a God of truth. And he's going to bring truth to our hearts. And sometimes our hearts are going to be like the hearts of the Pharisees. And they're going to be like, I will not hear this. And our hearts are going to have to be broken. D.A. Carson says that the entirety of John's gospel is going to furnish the key for understanding these introductory verses, not the other way around. A careful analysis of the entirety of John's gospel will show Just how important these first few verses are. The prologue sets the themes. And the first of these recurring themes we see presented in John's gospel are those of life and light, which as John Crabb mentioned earlier, this is good for us because this is a major theme of our church. This is part of the vision of Prism Church is that the light of the world would shine through us as a church and then people would see the glory of God. That's not possible if the Holy Spirit does not come. If Jesus does not shine, if the true light does not shine in and through our church, the glory of God won't be seen. This is the nature of a prism. In fact, our prism verse is Jesus speaking to this very subject in John eight twelve. He spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's on the back of the sign out front. It must be true. Friends, it's an easy thing to remember. But there are two things in this section of the prologue that I think will really encourage us today. And so I'm going to look at them. And the first is from verses 4 through 8. The life gives light. This is what John is coming to communicate to us. The life gives light. Verses 4 through 8 read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. For clarity's sake, the John spoken of in these verses is not the Gospel of John writer. And that would be the Apostle John. The Apostle John is not speaking of himself in the third person, as he will from time to time throughout his Gospel, when he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. In this case, he's talking about John the Baptist. He'll get to more descriptives of John's ministry. In fact, there's going to be a, 
a really great section of Scripture we get to study later this spring uh, about the ministry trajectory of John the Baptist and how different it is from the expected Western ministry trajectory of most churches and ministers. I mean, John had this peak of interest and then died in a prison. I mean, this is how the leaders of the Old and the New Testament track their lives and suffering for the truth and for the realities of the gospel. So different from what we expect these days. The scriptures in the prologue here introduce this theme of life and light, trying to make a connection between the two. And it makes sense. In the physical world, life is dependent on light. And John is contending that this is true in the spiritual world too. And if you think about it, logically speaking, if Jesus is the one through whom all things were made, his life created light. He said, let there be light. We know that the light shines and that he came to show us the way. But what do these mean? In the Old Testament, there are plenty of references to the Lord's light being his presence or his word. Psalm 27.1 is familiar to some of us. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Songs have been written about Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The theme of Jesus being the life will also get expounded upon considerably through the first 10, 15 chapters of John In John 5, Jesus says he came to give us life. In John 10, he says he's come to give us life and that life abundantly. He says as well in John 14 that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And all these variant teachings on life restate that without Jesus, it's just impossible for us to know real life. So what does that even mean? Practically speaking, what does it mean that Jesus would be the life? Well, the answer is really multifold. First, and probably most obviously, as we've already stated, as the one through whom all things were created, he is literally the source of physical life. We also see that he is the source of all meaningful life. We were created to be in relationship with God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our lives made possible by the gospel of Jesus, what Jesus has done to redeem us and restore us. Human beings flail about trying to find purpose and joy in life independent of connection to the one who they were made to live with. Meaningful life is found as we discover our purpose as the daughters and sons of God seen through the lens of what it means to be part of God's world with him as the center, and we as the children and joyful servants of the Almighty, we find life becoming the children of God. And this life begins when we believe and lasts for eternity, and that's another kind of life we'll talk about. Jesus has come to provide eternal life. It isn't just to mean happening on the other side of death. This life that you now begin to experience in this world, you take that with you when you go. In fact, it's the only thing you get to take with you when you go. 
Jesus said in John 12, 46, as we read, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. When I was in youth ministry, uh, I got to do some really fun physical activities that I'm not sure I could do anymore. Um, (laughs) One was spelunking. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's a fancy way of saying caving. But I don't mean like the kind they had when I was growing up. We had this place in Washington called Luray Caverns where you got your own flashlight and you followed a guide downstairs. No, this is like real subterranean caving in the North Carolina mountains. And you'd put on your worst clothes because they would be so soiled that by the end of the day, no amount of tide could rescue them. And the way this works is you go out there with the guide and we'd have, you know, 20, 30 youth and this team would... Hep come and they'd give us our little miners' helmets that all had this little light on the front of them. And then you'd sit outside in the light and they'd explain to you where you're going and why the helmet's important and why the light's important. And then, out of curiosity, you'd turn the light on and you'd see that there was less wattage in this thing than in your refrigerator bulbs. And then you go down a little deeper into the cave and they do another orientation just to kind of get your eyes used to a little bit of darkness. And then you begin the real plunge into the belly of the earth. And at some point, they take you in this particular tour to a place they call the dark room, where they've actually taken uh, instruments down there to measure light. And in this place, they've discovered that there was no light at all. You think you know dark. You know, you'll go to bed sometimes, and it's dark, and then you wake up in the middle of the night to use a bathroom or something, and you realize, it's man, it's really bright in here. There's like the moon shooting through, and all of a sudden... All this light that was there just before you went to bed, but you didn't notice, your eyes have adjusted, and here you are. You get down in this cave, there's no adjustment of your eyes. There's no light. And it's amazing what happens. That little, like, useless, you know, filament of no wattage that was up on planet Earth's surface, now is so bright, it's unbelievable. As a matter of fact, if somebody shines their little light helmet into your eyes, it, like, hurts. That's how dark it is. You can't make it spelunking unless you have a guide who knows where they're going and you have light. These are the realities of a dangerous track through the bowels of a mountain. And I would say the same thing is true for our lives here on earth. We, we think we have a pretty good bead on life sometimes. We say, you know, I, I, I got this. I, I don't need this light. I don't need a guide. And some of us just have found ourselves flailing about in the world looking for some reason uh, for life. We're, we're seeking it and others' approval and, and our status or the amount of stuff we collect. And I know personally that there have been times in my life where I've come to places of great darkness um, and it was God showing me how desperately I needed Him and how easy it was, especially in an affluent culture, to think you can make it without him. And he has had to break me of that from time to time. You may be in a place where, you know, it's been a long time since you actually meditated on the realities of God's presence in your life. You say, I'm a child of God. I know the Lord. But your day-to-day operations don't really acknowledge that you're living by grace, that you're finding your life, life, real life, in your identity as a loved child of God. And then... When all of a sudden you come into a dark place in life, you are lost. And life, Jesus' life, is designed 
to fill us, that we would know fullness, fullness of his love. And that life provides light. Here's the second thought I have for you this morning from our passage, and that is that the light, Jesus, gives rights. Verses 9 through 12 of John 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Jesus is referred to as the true light. You recognize how to, what a challenging statement this would be in a postmodern culture like ours where relativistic thinking would lead us to all to believe that we could never know the truth and to actually claim that you were the true light or that you'd seen the true light would in and of itself be arrogant. John says not only is Jesus the true light, he says those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, they alone get the right to be called the children of God. These verses as we'll see as we track through John's gospel, are countercultural in our world. They're a hang-up, even for some Christians who are reluctant to have others see them as believing in a Christianity that is exclusive. And what I mean by that is, is that God actually has a methodology or, a, or he has a way that we are to approach him, that it's on God's terms. Inclusion is such huge cultural dogma that if you believe that only those humble enough to admit their need for forgiveness and ask for it can actually have it, some will see that as harsh. It is the most basic of Christian principles, let alone parenting principles, that you teach your kids to say, I'm sorry, and then forgiveness is extended. They, they don't get the right to say, I'm never going to apologize and humble myself for being a little poo. You know, you say to them, hey, 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 if you're a good parent, what do you say? I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry too. Let's move on. This is part of living. This is part of life. And sometimes our human sense of entitlement is on full display when humans think they deserve to be the children of God not willing to come to him on his terms, he being Jesus. Today's text says Jesus was the true light. If he was God, the world was made through him. But his own people, the Israelites, did not recognize this. They knew of the messianic prophecies. They heard the ethical teaching of Jesus, but they did not buy into the whole he was before Abraham and Isaac. They thought they didn't need him. They didn't need his light. They were offended that they were being told that they were in darkness. It's imperative to remember that, according to John 5.18, the Pharisees sought to kill Jesus, not because he was teaching love one another, but instead because he said God was his father, making himself equal with God. If all Jesus ever did was teach about the grace of the Father but never brought any 
if all he ever said was love one another, if that's all that the gospel was, was loving people, and there was never any truth about the gospel, they probably would have never, if there was never any harsh reality that he had to let the religiously arrogant hear, he probably wouldn't have been crucified. He was crucified because he offended. I don't like offending people. I try not to. I really like being liked. I'm fond of it. But if Jesus is the true light, what choice do you have but to affirm that? Logically speaking, if Jesus is God, he's not pointing the way to God. He's saying, I'm here. I'm not sending you on a journey where you can find him. I am him. In John 8, 12, we've already read this. Jesus spoke to them saying, and you can again see it on our sign every week, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus said in John 12, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Think of the arrogance of a person who wasn't God standing up in front of a bunch of people and saying, I'm the light of the world. I mean, the notion that you would ever, as a, as a human being, make that claim. If you ever hear anybody do that, run. Run far, run fast, and take as many people as you can with you. It's bad. It's a cult. And I have some sad news for all of us who claim to be Christians. If Jesus wasn't God, then we've been duped into a cult by a guy who said he was the light of the world, even though he's dead now, and we sing songs about him. Light of the world, you came down into darkness. This is the reality of what Jesus forces human beings to do. Are you going to acknowledge who he claims to be or are you going to ignore him? If he's a man, you can. Otherwise, you have someone who is calling you to a relationship with him. He's saying, I am God the Father. We are one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I'm coming to you to offer a relationship, a restorative relationship. You can be brought back into fellowship with the God of creation. I can forgive your sins. All you have to do is be humble enough to ask, and then you can have your greatest desire, which is to be loved unconditionally by your Creator and enjoy what it means to grow in relationship with Him. John Owen the great theologian and Puritan wrote in communion with God, quote, the soul through Christ is at perfect peace with God. So the souls of believers glorify the Lord Jesus Christ because they can come boldly to God with confidence, peace, joy, and assurance. They can call him Father. They can strengthen themselves in his love. They can walk in peace and live without fear. Once they ran from him for fear. Now they approach him with love, joy, and peace. A couple of years ago, I got to serve as the interim director, athletic director at the college where I teach, Providence Christian College, which is here in Pasadena. And uh, one group of baseball players went on uh, 
late afternoon hike that kind of turned into an evening hike that they didn't intend for it to become. And the next thing they knew, they were stuck up in the San Gabriel Mountains, lost and in the dark. You might think, well, what's the big deal? Well, I live in the foothills in Duarte, and I can tell you I have locks on my trash cans because bears play with them. We have coyotes that work around our neighborhood now that I have a pit bull Labrador mix in my yard. They don't come around our house much, but they're there. We have rattlesnakes. We have all sorts of things up in the hills of the San Gabriel Mountains. So to be lost up there, it's a scary thing. And you may think you're a pretty tough college athlete. You've been pressing weights. You're looking pretty buff. You're up there, and all of a sudden now you realize, I can't see 10 feet away from me, and I don't know where I am, and there's no cell service. It's pretty scary. I talked to those guys. They they were humbled. They eventually found their way to cell service and then uh, hit the (laughs) GPS tracker and called and frightened and said, son, come get us, you know, And, and they found their way out. But what is true for all of us is when your life is at stake, your pride goes out the door. You call for help. You don't care if others think think you're weak or afraid. You pray to God. When wild animals are looming and dangerous falls from cliffs are possible, even macho college athletes don't mind admitting they're lost and walking in darkness Friend, do you want to be called a child of God? Do you want to know in your heart that you're a child of God? There's one requirement. The humility to say, I don't deserve it. And and I can't make myself good enough for God to love me unconditionally. I'm going to surrender to his mercy. Whoever received Jesus had the right to be called the child of God that they always wanted to be. It's nothing you can earn. It's something that you have to only rely on because God wants to be the one who is honored for his grace. He wants to be the one who is glorified for being merciful. He is not a tyrant that says, I will love you conditionally if you meet these expectations. He says, I offer my love freely to you in Christ. Scripture says, We must humbly receive Jesus, and that requires asking for forgiveness. Jesus explains later in John 6, we'll get to a greater detailing of this reality, but even the capacity to get to that point of being broken and and recognizing you're lost, we believe is a gift from God. John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Today, perhaps, is your day. Perhaps for the first time you really get it, that he loves you. He's provided a way. He is the true light. And now you're ready to simply receive this gift. Jesus, the word who is God, came as light so that whoever believes in him would not remain in darkness He's come to rescue those in darkness. And this is true even if you already call yourself a child of God, even if you have the Spirit of the Lord living in you and you're stuck in a dark place. 
This isn't just a message for people who've never met Jesus. For many of us who are stuck in this darkness, and yet we're still flailing around, not depending on the light. And Jesus is saying, I I want to be your life so that I can guide you to the things that I want that will give you joy instead of you reaching about in the darkness and grabbing onto things that could actually harm you. The answer to all of these things is the humility it takes to say, I need you. And today I want to, in our communion time, offer you one more opportunity to do just that. So let us pray.